Welcome to the Three Creeks Church Podcast. We're a church in Gahanna, Ohio, that exists to help people find and follow God. We hope this message encourages you, challenges you, and helps you discover how much God really loves you. Hey, good morning, Three Creeks. Uh, Quick announcement. I've been told that if you're a jellyfish, which means you're in elementary school and you're going back to our kids' class, that you're dismissed now. You can head back, see Miss Liz in in the back there. Jellyfish is the perfect name for uh, kids in elementary school, right? They're kind of fun to watch. They're cute. They're kind of blubbery creatures. Uh, But sometimes they try to murder you. Um, And so you guys can head on back there. You'll be in a a safe, age-appropriate class with leaders who love Jesus and I uh, love your kids. And so uh, we've been in this series, right, Kings and Kingdoms, and uh, I'm excited to jump into that. This is kind of just mind-blowing to me that as a church, uh, committing to read through two pretty lengthy books of the Bible and uh, to do that personally and then to kind of talk about that here in our time on Sunday and to explore, like, what, what does that mean for us? So I hope you may have been reading it. It's a little weird. Uh, it's, it's a bizarre part of the Bible. You've probably already bumped into some, like, that, that's in there? How did that get in there? Shouldn't someone have, like, edited that out? Nope, it's in there. Um, and so what we're doing is we're covering the books of First and Second Kings, which is really about a, a 350, 400-year time frame of the nation of Israel. We kind of get to, to drop into what, what did that uh, look like for them. And it starts, the book starts at kind of the most prosperous time for Israel, where uh, David is king, and, and really Israel is flourishing. They're at their best. And by the end of the book, you see Israel at, at their worst. You, you see anti-flourishing happening. In fact, it's just a disaster where um, eventually uh, the people of Israel are exiled. They're, they are taken over by uh, foreign nations and uh, many of them are ripped out of kind of their homeland, and uh, their lives are disrupted. So uh, there's a lot going on here, and uh, what we're going to do today is we're going to drop right into these six, cha- six chapters in 1 Kings 11 through 6, um, and we're, we're going to kind of be in this time frame between King Solomon, who, who was where we left off in the story, and we're going to lead up before the time, if, if you're familiar at all in the Bible, maybe you're familiar with the prophet Elijah, we're going to like stop right before him, and we're going to just cover kind of the time frame in between there. And uh, like I said, most of you hopefully have been reading this. If not, here's like a Bible like cheat for you, okay? There's headings in your Bible, so when you go to like 1 Kings 11 through 16, you can pretend like you know where we're at. You just read the heading, and you're like, oh, we're talking about King Asa, because it's right there in your head. You don't have to read it all. Uh, so if, if you're like trying to catch up, we're going to be around a lot in these chapters today. So like keep your Bible open or keep your phone open. And uh, maybe those headings can kind of help you navigate some of the story here. But what we're going to do is we're going to talk about what happened, right? Uh, there's a story here of, of many generations of kind of compromise and a division that happens, uh, kind of this social and moral collapse for the nation of Israel. But we're also going to talk about why it happened. Because uh, when, when stuff like that goes down, it's fascinating to study it. I mean, every historian is going to ha- kind of have their take on, on a series of events. And the author of Kings, um, while this is, is incredibly complex, they make it clear over and over again, there's actually one reason, there's one thing behind all of this, and, and it shows up pretty clearly. And then lastly, we want to talk about how this applies for us because obviously it was written down, it was preserved, it, it was uh, placed into God's word because we actually deal 
with the same core problem that, that they're wrestling through. And, and I think that there's a lot in there for un, us to unpack today about what we, we should do about it, what, what's available to us. And so uh, open up your phones or your Bibles to 1 Kings 11. And uh, as we're jumping into that, I want to give you a little bit of context of what I, what I think has happened. What I, what I think is going on here is we're seeing a compromised community. And a compromised community is just kind of my way of, of identifying like in, in this time period what happens to this nation. It, this kind of thing has happened in many other nations and countries and people groups and communities and workplaces and churches and, you know, all across the spectrum. A compromised community is, is probably the subtitle for this section. And what I mean by a compromised community is it's a community that's experiencing social breakdown and moral decay. Um, and I, I didn't uh, come up with that definition. In fact, I thought, this sounds like a compromised community. And so I did what any person would do, and I went to ChatGPT. And I was like, hey, ChatGPT, give me a great definition for what a compromised community is. And this is what it spit out, the robot that it is. It said, it's an erosion of social order, values, and safety due to external influences, often manifesting through illicit activities and a breakdown in the moral fabric of its members. All right, I promise I wrote the rest of my sermon. That's the only chat GPT part, all right? Like, I put work into this. Um, and what I did, what's fascinating, I didn't just go in and say, define this. I said, define this in light of, and I put a few different TV shows and movies uh, that have kind of been popular in recent years that I would look and I'd say, that, that setting that that TV show and that movie is happening in is in a compromised uh, community. I put down the movie Taxi Driver, which I, I didn't uh, grow up watching. I, I didn't remember it, but then I remembered the, you talking to me? I like, uh, there's like this famous scene where he's like standing there and he's like holding his gun. Uh, but he's a taxi driver in New York City in the 1970s, and there's all this crime, this corruption, this social unrest. Uh, the Great Gatsby, uh, this is kind of a, a setting in the Roaring Twenties in Long Island. All this wealth and kind of extravagance and, and, and the corruption in the midst of that. I entered the movie Breaking Bad, or the, the TV series Breaking Bad. Uh, kind of present day Albuquerque, New Mexico. This guy who gets diagnosed with cancer ends up entering into the drug scene and uh, producing uh, the, this meth and being a part of all these drug lords and gangs, it's crazy. I entered uh, the TV series Peaky Blinders, which is set in kind of a post-World War I setting of just um, England uh, and, and this Birmingham area is just morally falling apart and the gangs and, and the gambling and the violence that's going on. So I entered these four movies and TV shows and I was like, define what a compromised community is in light of all of that. And that was the definition it gave. Social breakdown, unrest, moral decay. The, they, these shows and these movies and these things like them, they paint a picture of kind of a Wild West broken society. That, um, and, and kind of what you do is if you get in, into these narratives, you kind of become convinced, right? Like there's no rules anymore. No one's in charge. Like the, the people in leadership have no power and, and there are people who do and, and they're corrupt people. That, that the, the rules don't apply, especially not to the main characters that we're following. We're watching them navigate these kind of compromised communities. And actually, th this kind of storytelling is very familiar. Um, in fact, what we call these main characters in all, all these movies and shows, we call them antiheroes. 
right? Thank you, Taylor Swift. Now you know what an anti-hero is, right? Um, it, this is actually familiar all the way back to like William Shakespeare and, and, and plays where someone is the main character, right? They're the protagonist, but they are not the typical noble hero that you expect in like <laughs> your average movie, right? Your average uh, story and narrative. These kinds of anti-heroes, they're cynical, they're defiant, they're jaded, they're pessimistic, they're very unorthodox in their practice, they're at odds with society, they're remorseless for what they're doing, and they're motivated by self-interest. And they're the main character. They're not the antagonist, they're, they're the main person. That's why they're called an anti-hero. And they lead us to believe that life is just morally complex. I mean, look at the communities they're in, and life becomes way more gray, especially morally, that it's not black and white anymore. You kind of have to make up your own rules because society is decaying. Sometimes there's motives of God has abandoned us and there's no other options. It's every man for himself. And I think that the reason those kind of TV shows and movies have become more popular is we often find ourselves at times feeling like we're in a compromised community. And sometimes that's very personal in like our relationships or our family. And sometimes that's very social, like in our workplace or maybe even our church or our community or our country. We, we feel like none of the rules matter anymore. It's every man for himself. Everything is decaying, declining, breaking down. And when we find ourselves in those places, we feel incredibly stuck and we're hurting, we, we feel cynical, we feel jaded, we're pessimistic, we feel at odds with those around us, we just don't care anymore. And so I think we're tempted to find ourselves in these anti-heroes and say, that's how I feel. That's how I feel about the world around me or my context. And I, I just want to forget the rules and forget others and make my own way. So Israel's in the phase of their existence where this is them. They're in the midst of a compromised community. There's social breakdown and moral decay all around, and it just, just gets worse generation after generation. And the anti-heroes, uh, believe it or not, they're the kings. If you've read the section, you've probably seen a lot of kings' names. And, and they are the ones who are the main characters we're following through the story, but they're corrupt. Um, we track them, and we see that they're treacherous and immoral and self-interested leaders. And it's, it's because of these kings we can kind of begin to see how we started to head this way. I would describe this time as, as a civil war for Israel, just to give you a little bit more context before, before we dive into how this fits for us. But what's happening here is we see as all those kings rise up and, and uh, are a part of uh, the nation, we see that there was continual war between King Rehoboam and King Jeroboam. That's where we're going to jump into our story today. There's, it says there's continual warfare. We see that with uh, Abijah and Jeroboam uh, through their lifetime, these kings battling it out together, warring. We see that with King Asa and Basha. Man, these names are wild, right? Don't name any of your kids uh, these names. Uh, find something better. Uh, we see this internal conflict. What actually happens is after King Solomon, um, his son, Rehoboam, ends up causing this split. And so two tribes remain in the south, kind of following that uh, lineage of David and Solomon, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, and the other ten secede. And they're like, we're not having it. 
We're not following you. They raise up their own leader named Jeroboam, and it's literally a civil war for the next 200 years. And um, just to put that in perspective, the American Civil War was four years. 200 years of internal conflict. Civil, civil war will, will rip apart any group of people. But, but imagine the amount of unrest and, and brokenness that, that comes in that time. How, how helpless it would feel, how, how easy it would be to question where, where God is. And so some of the main characters in our story, we already mentioned them. We're just going to look at two of them. The first one is Rehoboam, all right? He's the heir to the throne. He's Solomon's son. He's the next in line to be king. We see just in, in a few verses uh, what he does his, uh, kind of as his first duty as king. And it's incredibly arrogant and it's incredibly unwise. If you, if you have your Bible, uh, let's start in verse 3 and just read a, few, like, a little section of what King Rehoboam does. Starting in verse 3, it says, Jeroboam and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam. And they asked him, Your father put this heavy yoke on us. Lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. And so Rehoboam answered, Go away for three days and come back to me. And so the people went away. And what King Rehoboam did was he consulted with the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people, he asked. And they replied, if you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. But Rehoboam rejected the advice the elders gave him, and he consulted the young, man who had, the young men who had grown up with him and uh, who were serving him at that time, and he asked, what's your advice? How should we answer these people who say to me, lighten the yoke your father put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him replied, these people have said to you, your father's put a heavy yoke on us, make our, our yoke lighter. Now tell them, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist, right? I'm, I'm, I'm going to put a, a heavier yoke on you. My father laid a heavy yoke on you. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips, and I will scourge you with scorpions. And that's what starts the Civil War, right? That's, that's like the election of Lincoln for the Civil War, right? It's, it's this uh, trigger that sets off the other ten tribes to say, we're out of here. He, it breaks them. There's already all this unrest that's sitting there, and, and this is the final straw. And, and that's why I say he's unwise and he's arrogant. He literally gets advice not to do it from the people he should have been listening to, from the people who had wisdom, the people who had watched his father lead the nation before. And instead he goes to his buddies, and, and he flexes. And, and, and we could do a whole message on this of, of, of how easy it is to elevate and celebrate um, just the attraction and, and the buzz of what possibly our peers or, or like um, uh, uh, the younger demographic of our community, how easy it is to just be drawn to that, right? But there, there's this wisdom that comes that isn't sexy. It maybe isn't conventional. No, no one's going to applaud you for it. But, but there's weight to it. And, and it's, it's so easy to, uh, to ignore it. The second character that we've already mentioned is Jeroboam. Their names are very simple, similar, I know. Try, try to track, all right? Um, Jeroboam was the one who went to Rehoboam to ask him to lighten the load. He, he was the representative for the people. 
I call him a self-interested king because he, he does end up being kind of nominated and elected as, as the king for the, the Confederate side, right? Like the, the people who secede the ten tribes uh, in northern Israel, he is, is uh, elected as their king. But he has a fear. And he, he, he has a self-serving agenda because he's wondering the entire time what happens if the people go back. What, what happens when they go back to Jerusalem this fall for the annual feast that we're supposed to have every year? What happens when, as people are farming and raising animals and um, buying and trading and, and they begin to make sacrifices or to give generously back to the temple in Jerusalem, what happens when they go there next year and, all, and, and they begin to worship, worship God um, back in Jerusalem, back in kind of enemy territory? It says this in 1 Kings 12. Let's start at verse 26. It says, Jeroboam thought to himself, the kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. If these people go up and offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to the Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they will kill me and return to King Rehoboam. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. This is a big no-no. Um, he said to the people, you know, it's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other in Dan. And this thing became a sin. The people came to worship the one at Bethel and went as far as Dan to worship the other. So he basically puts two brand new temples with two idols in each of them and says, you don't need to travel all the way to Jerusalem. Just go here. Dan would have been like the furthest point north. He'd have been like, walk in the opposite direction of Judah. And Bethel would have been right on the way down. <laughs> So, you know, you, you maybe would have traveled for a couple days or something, and all of a sudden you're like, man, the kids are out of goldfish crackers, and it's just tiring, and the Airbnb we stayed at was just a hot mess, and you're in Bethel, and it's like, man, we should just camp here and not go as far. Let's not keep hiking all the way to Jerusalem. So he purposely, strategically sets these places up out of fear to point them away from God. The, re the reason the golden, golden calves thing is a big no-no is Israel's done this before. You go back and, and read the story of, of Moses and Aaron sometime, and this is just like typical, repeated fashion of Israel turning away from God. And that's exactly how we, we see this time. Now, there's a lot more here. That's just like the best, quickest overview I, I want to give us. Why did it happen? I mean, there's so much going on. There's so many other stories in these chapters we haven't even began to unpack. But why did it happen? Is it, is it too difficult to really, really find the source of it all? In, in fact, maybe what the easiest thing to do is, is to just blame the leaders, right? Like, that's who we've been tracking the whole time, the anti-heroes, right? The kings. We've looked at Solomon, and we've looked at Jeroboam and Rehoboam, and we look at every king. The story's all about the kings. The book is called... Kings, right? I mean, it's, that's got to be the problem here. The problem is the kings. And, and in a sense, they're involved, right? Being a leader always has influence, and, and they contribute to and perpetuate the issues that are going on in that compromised community for hundreds of years. But they are not the core problem. It's easy to blame the leaders, 
They, they are a part of it. It's, it's way easier, right, to say your boss is an idiot <laughs> or to say, man, that person who's leading the country has no idea what they're doing. That pastor is talking like he has not a clue, right? It's so much easier to, to point to someone who's overseeing a community and just project all the problems onto them. And they do have a part in it. But here's our big idea for today. In a compromised community, the core problem is not the leaders. It is idolatry. It's idolatry. And we're, we're going to unpack this for a minute because this is a weird word that none of us woke up thinking we were going to use today. <laughs> um, but this over and over again gets identified as the main problem. This is what's going wrong. If you still have your Bibles open, just look in 1 Kings 16. In verse 13, it talks about King Basha. And it says that he aroused the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, by uh, their worthless idols. We see the next king. It says that he aroused the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, by their worthless idols. Sorry, that's verse 26. Just in one chapter, you see repeated over and over again, what God's upset about is the idols. In fact, this is why the other character in Kings comes to the surface. We, ha we have kings and we have prophets. And again, this is, this is another interesting dynamic for us to think of because we, <laughs> I don't think anyone has a job as a prophet here, right? Like that'd be kind of bizarre. Um, the prophets are people who God raised up to confront the leaders and the communities and the idolatry that they were either ignoring or perpetuating. We see that in, in chapter 14 of 1 Kings. Go there and look at verse 8. It says, this, this is the prophet Ahijah going to King Jeroboam in the north. Remember, we, we set up the golden calves, and God says, not having that. So he, he raises up the prophet Ahijah and sends him. And in chapter 14, verse 8, it says, this is God kind of through the prophet speaking to Jeroboam. I tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you, but you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commands and followed me with all of his heart, doing only what was right in my eyes. You've done more evil than all who lived before you. What a statement. You've made for yourself other gods, idols made of metal, and you've aroused my anger and turned your back on me. And there's all sorts of prophets who are raised up in this time. Some are in the book of Kings, like Ahijah, and Elijah and Elisha. I don't know why all their names rhyme, but they do. Um, there's other books written by prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Joel and Amos and Hosea. These are other parts of your Bible that happen during this time. They're not, they're not in a separate time period just because they're in a separate book. They overlap. And these prophets are continually trying to address the idolatry and the people wandering from God and, and the deeper issue of idols of the heart that we're going to get to shortly. And it, it is a terribly difficult job to be a prophet. When you're in a, it, it's terribly difficult to enter into those TV series and those movies and be like, that's not morally correct. I mean, that like ruins the whole movie. You got to like let it play out. People murder each other, right? And all the, uh, you know, just debauchery that happens. But what a prophet's job was to do was to enter into that story where there's no more rules, everything's gray, every man for himself, and say, God is still present in the midst of this community, and you're breaking his heart. It is not gray to him. He sees everything you're doing, 
and he's not ignoring you, and he's certainly not endorsing you. And over and over again, the prophets come and say, this is who God is. They bring him back to the front, and they clarify, and they point it out. They point it out specifically in people. And it, it's, it's horrible. The prophet Jeremiah, he spent 20 years talking about all the idols that were happening in Israel. And then God said, I want you to write it all down. That would be super overwhelming if I was like a pastor for 20 years. And this one was like, could you write it all down? I'd be like, oh, no. Like, I, have no, I hope I have all my notes in, you know, uh, saved in Google Drive. Um, and so Jeremiah hires this scribe named Baruch, and he writes it all down. And he says, go take it to the king. And so Baruch goes and delivers the scroll, and he leaves, and the king starts reading it. He actually is having it read to him. And it says in Jeremiah that the king would take a razor blade and cut out pieces of scroll and throw it in the fire as he read it. That's, that's what we're dealing with. Forget you. I'm going to do what I want. This, this is not just the kings, but th this is the community that Israel in, is in. And the prophets are trying to bring God back to the front of it. We actually see the criteria for a good king with King Asa. If you go to chapter 15, just read verses 11 through 14. We won't read it here, but he gets rid of the idols. King Asa is the first good king, and what it says that he did was he devoted himself fully to the Lord, and he got rid of the idols. Like, this is the heart issue. That's what I'm trying to drive home for us. This, this is why it happened. This is what the prophets were raised up to do. This is why it's not just about the kings, but it's, a, it's about what they perpetuated within that community. Now, let's talk about how it applies to us, right? Because uh, you're not in 930 B.C. Uh, under King Jeroboam, right? <laughs> you're here in 2024 in America wondering what in the world an idol is, right? And typically, an idol would just be an, an image made out of metal or clay or wood that would like kind of sit up in your house, in your kitchen. It was just there. But I think how this applies to us is that actually the root of all human and relational problems is idolatry. And that's a big statement, but I think that's why this is here. I think that's why this perpetuates for hundreds of years. It wasn't a bad week. It wasn't like, oh, that we just elected a bad president and Jeroboam was the worst. He's like over and over again, generation after generation of human beings, someone rises up to finally do it a different way. God rises up an, another prophet to finally intervene and say, hey, get rid of this. Like, come back to God. And here we are generations later as human beings Probably not familiar with setting up idols in our houses, but certainly dealing with them in our own hearts. An idol, maybe just a simple definition for us, is anything that we value more than God himself. That's the core problem here, right? They're walking away from God. Another way to think of that, um, maybe in terms even outside of just how that affects your relationship with God, but how that affects you and your heart, is that an idol can also be described as anything that we're kept in bondage to for our happiness. Anything that we're kept in bondage to for our happiness. I want to unpack this a little bit because we all have idols. It's the core problem we all face. So for Rehoboam, right, obviously he's, uh, uh, people are setting up idols, actual physical ones, 
But what we see identified in Rehoboam is his own idol of acceptance and popularity and approval with his friends, right? The young peers who are like, hey, tell them that you'll be twice as hard on them as your dad. We see it with Jeroboam when he's afraid of the people returning to Jerusalem and uh, he, he wants to keep control, his idols of power and self-protection, and he misleads the people with these new idols, these golden calves, and the new temples. Tim Keller wrote a book um, called Counterfeit Gods, and he just defines an idol this way. He says, it's anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give you, You put something in the place of God and you expect it to be God to you. And and a a way, actually, I think that this is showing up in counseling and therapy circles and and in psychology, in the world of psychology, they'll often talk about things called attachments, right? That's where we get this idea of things that you have to have to be happy, things we become attached to. So this is like your free therapy for the day, right? You don't have to like go pay for your session, but you're more than welcome to go talk to an actual therapist, not just a pastor. (laughs) These attachments, uh, this is um, uh, the psychologist Gerald May. And he says that regardless of how compulsion appears externally, right? Regardless of how we, we act on the outside, underneath us, these attachments are always robbing us of freedom. We act not because we've chosen to, but because we have to. We cling to things, people, beliefs, behaviors, not because we love them, but because we're terrified of losing them. And this is the term we use for this compulsive condition called attachment. Each of us has countless attachments. We're attached to our daily routines, our environments, our relationships, and of course, our possessions. But we're also attached to our religious beliefs and to the image of ourselves and to others and God. And so in a spiritual sense, this is where he connects it. The objects of our attachments and addictions become idols. We give them our time and energy and attention whether we want to or not, even and often especially when we're struggling to rid ourselves of them. We want to be free. We want to be compassionate and happy. But in the face of our attachments, we are clinging and grasping and fearfully self-absorbed and this is the root of our trouble. Your therapist is going to tell you the same thing that First Kings is telling you. <laughs> you have an attachment problem. You have an idol problem. Your heart is prone to attach to things that can't deliver on the promises you think they can deliver. And it doesn't matter if it's money. That'll manifest itself because we're not generous, because we're afraid of not having enough. And so we, we make wealth an idol. We make money an idol. We don't use it as a tool. We use it as self-protection or for our, ourselves. You'll make sex an idol when you indulge in pornography, when, when you sleep with someone outside of marriage. All, all of that is making sex an idol. It's about me and pleasure and getting what I want. You, you can make yourself an idol when you decide to believe that your opinions are king over God's word. Like, there's so many ways that that the Wild West, the the compromised community, comes to fruition, and it's always idolatry. The problem with idols and and attachments is that they find a way into our hearts and minds, and it's incredibly difficult to get rid of them. They don't just live as images in our dining room or kitchen. They get carried around with us everywhere we go, often undetected and unnoticed, and they tempt us every day and everywhere if we're going to live in bondage to them, 
if, if, we, if there, we, we're going to continue living thinking they'll give us happiness. We don't have time to explore what all those idols could be. But I, I hope that you would spend time and take seriously the fact that this is real. This isn't just those ancient people in Israel. This isn't just that one bad king. This isn't just that, that movie and that TV show. Let's be honest. We all feel like we're in a very compromised community right now. You, you watch the news or social media, it's not going to make you feel good <laughs> about the situation around you. They're going to find every broken, just, you know, clickbait thing that can get your attention. It's, it's going to drive you nuts. And it's going to tempt you to think there's no way out. It's not worth it. The reason I asked Joel to read 1 Corinthians 10 earlier in the service was because I think that it offers something for us about what we can do to dethrone these idols in our hearts when they try to dethrone God and, and promise us false joy, false hope. This will be up on the screen, but in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is talking about all this trouble the Israelites have gotten themselves in. And he says, all these things have been written down as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. Again, he, he's referring back to, to the story of Israel. If you go read earlier in 1 Corinthians 10, you're just going to see lists of things that went wrong when Israel was this compromised community. Jumping down to verse 11, he says, These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us. You're just like them. I'm just like them. On whom the culmination of the ages has come. And so if you think you're standing for, firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. Oh, we've already sang about that so much this morning. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And when you are tempted, he will also provide, get this, a way out so that you can endure it. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. It's all connected. It's all connected. Your heart and the idols and God wanting to break into the spaces that you think you can find love and happiness and fulfillment Because the temptation to believe with idols or a compromised community is that there's no way out. Every man for himself. The rules don't matter anymore. Forget it. And what you find right here is that there is a God who knows your heart, who knows your brokenness, who, who sees all that mess in there, and he wants to give you a way out. For Israel, that was through those prophets who would, who would confront and provide opportunities for them to confess their sin and remove these idols. Generation after generation, they have this opportunity. What I would encourage you to find here, and this is our last bit, is that God provides a way out in three ways, through commonality, confession, and Christ. Commonality is, is just the fact that you're not any different from the people around you or the people in Israel. You're not the worst person on the planet Earth. What, what you're going through is not uncommon. 
as a pastor, I talk to people all the time who when they finally open up about what they've been struggling with, I'm like, (laughs) I've heard that before. They think they're the only one. They're terrified to be open, open about it. I got, I got a Facebook message, la, message uh, last night from a church in Wisconsin because there's a couple in the church who won't go talk with anyone else about what's going on in their marriage. And so they, they emailed us to see if maybe some an- anonymity would help, right? That's how afraid we are of the struggles and idols that we have is that a couple in Wisconsin is emailing a bunch of random church planners in Ohio saying, like, can, can I still kind of hide a little bit and maybe you help me? It's crazy. Do you know how many couples we've counseled? Because <laughs> marriage is so difficult. You're not the first person to ever have marriage problems. <laughs> There's commonality. There, there's a gift and a discipline called confession where we can just be honest about that with other people. And they don't beat us up over the head with it. They love us through it. They remind us of truth through it. And of course, the, the power for all this, the way out is Jesus. We, we don't have the power to escape these attachments on our own. We have to like reattach ourselves to something that can actually fulfill what we're looking for. And that is the person of Jesus and he's real, and he is active, and he's the only one who can dethrone those kinds of idols because he's a good king, and because he's a valid prophet, and because he's a human who's been tempted in every way that you've been tempted, and he loves you. I remember the first time I tried to uh, be vulnerable with, with some guys in my life. I, I was leading a, a small group, and we hadn't like hit that level yet where I could really talk about all of my garbage, and so we, we set aside one night as a group to have the girls meet together and the guys meet together. And I'm like, I'm going to get these guys to talk about all their, <laughs> all their brokenness. And I had no idea how to do it because I had never done it. And so what I did was I just made a Word doc. It was about two pages long of different sins and struggles that I knew I had in my life and that I knew others probably had too. And I remember I printed them out and I said, here are just all, all the most broken pieces of my own life and, and what I know others are going through. Can we just name it? Like, that's the only goal tonight. Can we just name it and pray for each other? And on that night, something happened with the guys in my group. They became vulnerable. They started naming the struggles and the idols they had in their life. And it actually didn't stop. We started to get language. We started to feel safe. We started to experience change because we were bringing this before the Lord too. And we actually started a little small group of guys who we would get together every Saturday morning at 6 a.m. and talk about what we're reading in our Bibles and confess sin to each other. And we didn't go prying. It was just open. And that space changed us. But if we're not willing to let God in, if we're not willing to let others in, if we're just going to say the rules don't apply to us, we're just going to try to make it. You're not going to experience the way out that God wants to give you, and he does want to give it to you. The hope in all this is that person of Jesus, because he gets it. He, he is the way of rescue and of healing and of transformation. 
I want to invite the band out and, and I'll pray for us just to give us some space to reflect on this. But Father, I don't know where else to go with this other than to you because I don't know the idols of every person's heart. I know my own. I know they're real. I know that this is, this is true. This is wisdom. But God, if anyone's like me, I'm afraid to bring that to you. I'm terrified to be honest. I know what it's like to be beat over the head and feel ashamed and honestly just be leaving a little empty because no one's helping. One of the promises you make, God, is that you are a helper. And so I just ask in prayer for that, God, that you would be a helper to those who are afraid or ashamed, but you want to do something in them. Like those guys who were in that group and just started naming their, their mess. Would you give us language and a, a safe place just with you, God, because you are good, you're merciful, you intervene, you, you send on our behalf, you, you make messages like this happen on Sunday because you want to heal and rescue and see transformation happen. And so God, forever you, you want to do today at that end, I just ask that they'd be open to you and that you would work in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the Three Creeks Church Podcast. To find out more about our church, to give online, or to attend a service, visit threecreekschurch.com.